in Christ's name, amen. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Marcus and worship team for leading us before his presence this morning. And good morning, church. Great to see you on this Lord's Day. It is Sunday, March 26th of 2023, and God is on his throne today, and all of God's people said, and how right and good it is for us to worship him, and because he is our enthroned, gracious, and loving Father. Hey, in just a moment, we're going to be opening our word to, to, to Proverbs chapter 30, and so I invite you to go ahead and turn there to Proverbs chapter 30 as as we will be bringing this series and Proverbs to a close. It's hard to believe that we've been in this series since January 8th. And so we will bring that series to a close as we prepare for this upcoming season of Holy Week. And as Carl has just said, I urge you to be a part of all of that. Capture the rhythm of Holy Week. Be a part of our worship next Sunday on Palm Sunday and, and thereafter. So much for us to be praying for. And so I want to, again, just ask you to, to join me as we pray. Um, there is so much that God wants to do among us. There are so many ways in which he is speaking to us. And uh, so let's spend just a moment and speak to him. Father in heaven, we do with joy gather in your presence. And we affirm this morning that there is no one like you. You are holy. You are exalted, and it is our desire, Father, in the intent of our hearts that you be lifted up this morning. As we have done in worship, so, Father, now as we turn to your word and listen to you speak, we always acknowledge, Father, that we will hear from your word things that we will never gather or hear anywhere else. And so thank you for the uniqueness, the reliability, the authority, the inspiration of your word. Father, we pray for those who will be a part of Eight Days of Hope. Thank you for even now how you're beginning to, to build that team to go and serve in the name of Christ. And so for those eight days, Father, we pray that you will do a phenomenal work, not only in the lives of those who will be serving, but especially in those who will be blessed by their presence and labor and gifts. Father, we also acknowledge that there are difficulties elsewhere too, and so our hearts are with the people of Mississippi this morning who, who, under the brunt of those tornadoes, experienced so much loss, and then on top of that, the loss of so many lives. Would your grace permeate there? And Father, as those areas even seek to, to rebuild and to regather and to try to move on. We pray for those who are experiencing such grief today that they will find the handles in you to be able to do that. And again, Father, as we have heard this morning, as you have been leading us as a church through a next 13 season of, of laying our lives before you as missions board, as the leadership team of our church, and just saying, God, what is it that you want us to be a part of? in this thrust to see the great commission finished in our lifetime, that, Father, as we set our eyes on you, would you continue to direct our steps? We pray for our mission partners who are scattered around the world, many serving domestically, many serving internationally overseas. And today, Father, for all that they do and for this coming week, we pray that your 
power would be displayed through them, that lives will be brought to Christ, that lives will be transformed and changed. And so thank you for those, our mission partners that we support financially, but especially through prayer even now as we lift them before your presence. And we do pray, Father, that this season of Holy Week that is upon us will be one in which we clearly and powerfully sense your presence, your mercy, your grace to redeem and to save. Thank you for the rescue that is ours in Jesus Christ. And as we now continue in this series and finish it up today in the book of Proverbs, Father, I pray that you would stand in my body and think with my mind and speak through my lips all that you would have us hear and say and do. I pray in the name of Christ and all of God's people said, we will never reach a level of full and perfect wisdom in this life. It will be for you and me always a lifelong pursuit because none of us ever arrive. But as we close out this series this morning, I invite you again to meet me in Proverbs 30, which is a fascinating and very unusual chapter. In a moment, I want to be able to read it in its entirety because I think it deserves to be read all at once. But even before I do that, notice either on the screen or in your Bibles, the very first line of verse 1 of Proverbs 30, the words of Agur, son of Yaka, the oracle. So obviously, this chapter was not written by Solomon, but a man by the name of Agur who appears out of nowhere and then leaves without a trace. He's never mentioned again, but he's got one entire chapter in the Bible written by him, attributed to him, but nobody knows who he was or even his father who is mentioned for that matter. And since his name and the name of his father are not Hebrew names, it's interesting that they were probably then not Israelites. And that word oracle that follows their names could also be translated, not just inspired utterance, which is one way to understand that word, but it also could refer to a clan of Ishmaelites. So maybe Agur and his father Yaakov were, were descendants of Abraham, but through the line of Ishmael. And yet they believed in Yahweh, the God of Israel. So whoever Agur is, he is a wise man despite what we might say would be his own comfort with that kind of label, as we'll see in just a moment. But in the end, the most definite thing that we can say about Agor is that he was someone from somewhere who was still telling everyone everywhere about the true God. So the chapter, which really features some of his own personal observations, is a poignant account on how to live your life in the fear of the Lord, which is the essence of wisdom. And it is fitting to me that the penultimate chapter of Proverbs comes from this man of mystery because this chapter really is a fitting summary of all that we have explored during this series together. So I'd like to read the entire chapter and then invite you to consider the amazing insight that flowed from the elegant pen of Agur, Proverbs chapter 30. Again, verse 1, the words of Agur, son of Yaakov, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? 
Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Do not slander a servant to his master, lest he curse you and you be held guilty. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. There are those how lofty their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. There are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives, to devour the poor from the earth and needy from among mankind. The leech has two daughters, give and give. Three things are never satisfied. Four never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water and the fire that never says enough. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Three things are too wonderful for me. For I do not understand the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Under three things, the earth trembles. Under four, it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king and a fool when he is filled with food. An unloved woman when she gets a husband and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The answer are people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. The rock badgers are our people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. The lizard you can take in your hands, yet it is in king's palaces. Three things are stately in their tread. Four are stately in their stride. The lion, which is the mightiest among beasts and does not turn back before any. The strutting rooster, the he-goat, and a king whose army is with him. If you have been foolish, exalting yourself, or if you've been devising evil, put your hand on your mouth. For pressing milk produces courage. Pressing the nose produces blood, and pressing anger produces strife. And this is God's holy word to us, and all of God's people said. The death of a guru tells the story of a Hindu boy by the name of Rabbi, who was born in India to a long line of Brahmin priests and trained as a yogi before facing an existential crisis that eventually brought him to faith in Jesus Christ. As a teenager, Rabbi tells us in his book that he thought everything was a god, whether it be a cow or a bug or a mountain 
or even people. It also meant that he thought that he himself was a god. And so he describes in his memoir how he would sit before a mirror and worship himself. It sounds absurd. But how many people today practice their own version of self-worship? Constantly thinking about ourselves, living with a sense of our own entitlement. When God finally got a hold of Rabbi, he realized that he was not divine, that he was not even a little God. And as he began to see who he is, according to the Bible, he recognized that God must be wholly different from himself. That's the experience of Agur as we come to Proverbs chapter 30 this morning. In this amazing, interesting, sometimes bizarre meditation, he tells us what it's like for him to have encountered the holy God of all. He sees God for who he is and therefore he sees himself in light of who God is. That's where he takes us in the first nine verses of Proverbs, excuse me, of Proverbs 30. The essence of wisdom, as he would tell us, is a sense of awe and reverence before the Lord. That's where we're going to begin because a life of wisdom I want you to see, which is what we've been talking about for the last 11 weeks, three months, is because wisdom begins with being overwhelmed by God's greatness. Notice how Agur begins in the third person. And he says right there in verse one, what I think sums up life for many of us, the man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Can I get an amen? I mean, how, how much have we say that about life right now? God, I'm exhausted. I'm just tired. I am weary and worn out. But how we need to be bolstered this morning by the lesson that Agur teaches us. That being overwhelmed by God's greatness requires, first of all, that we grasp how small we are. In verse 2, Agur is conscious of his own limitations, and he says, Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. That's such an interesting statement, because here we are, near the conclusion of the book of Proverbs, this book on wisdom, and Agur says, and I don't have it. In fact, he compares himself to be something less than even a human in those statements. So the more he knows about God, the more he realizes he doesn't know. I think as we have seen throughout this book, a fool is someone who doesn't know what he doesn't know. He begins, though Agur does, with this sense of his own limitations, his finiteness of how small he is. That's what humility is. Humility is an acknowledgement. It is, it is a grasping of your own limitations. Maybe the older he got, he realized how much he was forgetting. Why is it that we forget almost everything we have ever read or studied? I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm reading a book and I will come across an insightful line or a sentence and go, man, I'll never forget that. That is so good. 30 seconds later, I can't remember what I just read. How does wisdom evaporate from our minds the moment we need it most? 
because we're so small, because we are so finite. Agur says, I am not wise. And when you and I are able to say that, that's humility because a wise person would never say it. A wise person would never say, I am wise, just as in the same way, a 12-week series through the book of Proverbs, a wise person does not make. Proverbs is clear that the ultimate folly is to imagine yourself to be wise. Proverbs 26 verse 5 says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. We are so small. We are so finite. We forget so much. One One theologian has described the effect of sin on our intellect and calls out 14 mental limitations that all of us face. See if you can see yourself in some of these. Ignorance, distractedness, forgetfulness, prejudice, faulty perspective, intellectual fatigue, inconsistencies, failure to draw correct conclusions, intellectual apathy, dogmatism, intellectual pride, vain imagination, miscommunication, partial knowledge. We are such basket cases, aren't we? Again, Agur said in verse 2, surely I am too stupid to be a man. How often he thought of himself even less than a human and more like a brute. And that statement, while it does borrow some hyperbole, it underscores how limited we are in our knowledge of God. Humility. Throughout the book of Proverbs, you will find that humility and the fear of the Lord are synonymous. They go together. They mean the same thing. Being overwhelmed by God's greatness means grasping first how small we are and then beholding God's power first in creation. And as Agur moves on, he is not just thinking about himself, but he he has everyone everywhere in mind. And beginning in verse 4, he asks five important essential questions. Four of them, you'll notice, begin with the word who. Verse 4. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? And then he drops the most important question of all with two what's. What's his name? And what is his son's name? And then almost as if he taunts us, he says, surely you know. If you think you're wise, if you think you know everything, then answer those questions. It's clear that Agur was extremely familiar also with the book of Job, because you may recall a very similar passage from Job chapter 38, when God, speaking out of the midst of a whirlwind, confronts Job's comprehension of his ways. In one of my favorite sections of the Bible, Job 38 and 39. I'll just contain your thoughts to Job 38, but it's such an amazing section in its entirety. But in verses four and five, God asks Job these questions. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? God is being depicted here as a builder who surveys the land, who marks off the site, who pours the foundation, who builds up the building. And with a jab at, again, our finiteness, God then scratches his head, if you will, and says to Job, you'll have to help me, Job, 
because I forgot where you were when I was creating the world. And by the time God finished interrogating Job and read the entirety of Job 38 and 39, his dry mouth hung slack-jawed open and he was speechless. Who can answer those questions? Not even the most brilliant scientist who thinks he understands how this world came into existence can answer those questions. In Job 40, verse 4, he said at the end of this interrogation by the Almighty, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I put my hand over my mouth. That's the posture, a posture of humility. And then the answer to Agur's first four questions then is not me. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Not me. Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Not me. Who has wrapped up the water in his garments? Not me. And who has established all the ends of the earth? Certainly not me. The only answer to those questions is God. And so the first demand that wisdom places upon any of us is that we acknowledge how big God is and how small we are. And then Agur asks that fifth question. Did you notice it? It's such a good question. He says, what is his name and what is his son's name? Earlier in this series, Pastor Carl took us to Proverbs chapter 8 where we saw wisdom personified. And in in Proverbs chapter 8, wisdom said at the very beginning of the world, at the creation of the world, I was there. And then in Proverbs 8 verse 30, it says, I was beside him like a master workman and I was daily his delight rejoicing before him always. Who is speaking? The person who is speaking in Proverbs 8 is the answer to the question in Proverbs 30. What is his name and what is his son's name? And the answer that is resoundingly called forth in the New Testament is that his name is Jesus. He is the answer to Job's questions. He is the answer to Edgar's questions. He is the answer to every single question you have. He is the resolution. The mystery person of the universe is Jesus Christ himself, and now he is revealed to us. And in fact, when Jesus had that midnight encounter with Nicodemus, he clearly and deliberately answers Edgar's question. So it's amazing how familiar Jesus, of course, was with the Bible and with Proverbs 30 and even the question that Edgar raises here. For in John chapter 3, verse 13, Jesus said, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, he makes the audacious claim, That's me. So that Jesus Christ claims again to be the answer to these questions. So a life of wisdom begins with an overwhelming sense of God's greatness. When we grasp how small we are, when we see God's power revealed in creation. And then finally, as he says here, well, not finally, I just said that. Because we're going to keep going. You know that. We're not done. When we accept the authority and reliability of his word. Verse 5, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. In other words, if you want wisdom, if you're on this pursuit, this quest to live a wise life, don't trust yourself, trust what God says, and trust what God says in this book. 
You cannot live a life of wisdom. You will not walk the wise path without this book to guide your way. The first line of verse 5 is an objective statement. Every word of God proves true. What a great statement in regards to the inspiration and the authority of God's word. All of it, down to its words, is true. And that word prove, it proves true, refers to a refining process. In other words, it's saying over and over again, when you put God's word to the test, it is, it is proving itself again and again to be right on, to be accurate, to be true. The second line of verse five is a personal reality. Every word of God proves true, therefore, he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Since every word in the Bible is right, every word in the Bible is true, then we can take our refuge in what God says. But you can't experience the second line of verse 5 unless you know the reality of the first line of verse 5. And since every word of God is true, take your place right there. It doesn't matter what people may say about it or against it or contrary to it. You take your place standing with what God says and you'll find him to be a shield and a refuge in your life. And then Agur issues a rather strong warning in verse six. There are warnings all throughout Proverbs 30. Maybe you sensed that as we were reading it, but here's one. Verse six says, do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. We should know the danger of subtracting from God's word, of taking things out that belong there, and there is severe warnings in Scripture about not doing that. But here he says, if you add to his words, you'll be found to be a liar. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2 says, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. But here's this problem of adding to God's word. Accumulating our own thoughts and opinions and ideas on top of it and adding to God's word is just as dangerous as taking from it. Because adding to God's word is the height of arrogance. There is the heresy, again, of taking away from God's word. That's, if you will, the heresy of theological liberalism. But Agur here is talking about the error of adding to God's word, and that's the mistake, I think we could say, of a kind of hyper-fundamentalism. When we inflate our ideas and our opinions to be on the same level as God's word, that is also equally heresy. That's what Eve did. When God told her not to eat of the fruit of the tree, she interpreted God's words to mean don't even touch it. But she assumed that if eating it was bad, then, then touching it was also forbidden, except that's not what God said. Adding to God's word may be a very subtle mistake, but it's serious. It sounds good. 
It gives the impression that we take God's word seriously, but when we add to God's word, when we pile it on with our own ideas and and opinions, there is no power behind it and becomes just another form of dead legalism. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did during the days of Jesus' ministry. They added their own rules to God's word. And you can read almost the entirety of Mark chapter 7 where Jesus confronts this very same problem of the Pharisees adding to what God said But he summarizes it this way in verse 8 of Mark 7. You leave the commandment of God. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. We need to be careful here because the warning of Christ himself is so important to heed. Sometimes we demand things from people that the Bible never does. We don't stop where revelation stops. We must not add to God's word because we have no right to bind someone's conscience beyond what scripture says. All of us perhaps have felt a little bit of that temptation from time to time of of thinking we need to tie up the Bible's loose ends. But there's arrogance in that. John Newton said, if I venture beyond the pole of the Bible, I am on enchanted ground and subject to illusions and distortions. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and find you to be a liar. What is this life of wisdom? It begins with seeing how small we are, how great God is. It's acknowledging his power in creation, the authority of his word. And then there is this part in verse 7. When we pray for God to lead us not into temptation, and when we pray for God to give us only what we need, we are expressing our radical dependence upon him. In verses 7 and 9 through 9, we have the only recorded prayer in the book of Proverbs. Pastor Mike took us to this, a portion of this prayer when he spoke on money in Proverbs. As we return to this section for just a brief moment here, notice that Agur has just two items on his prayer list. You may have a prayer journal or a prayer list, and you may have it filled with a lot of requests, and that's entirely right and good. Most of us will have more than two, but, but Agur is if you will, a minimalist. He's got two prayer requests and he boils it all down to what he says in verse seven, two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. If you mark in your Bibles, you might want to circle the two words. It's the word remove and then the word give. Notice verse eight, remove far from me falsehood and lying First, he prays, let my lips be filled with truth. Let my words be far from falsehood. May everything that comes out of my mouth be true and accurate and right. And think about that. Apply the filter of that to your words that you speak every day. Are all of them truthful? Are all of your words accurate? When you tell a story, do you embellish? Do you make yourself the hero of the narrative? Why do we tell a lie? Because we want people to think of us better than we actually are. He prays, let my lips be filled with truth. You ever prayed that way? If not, 
We probably should. And then he asks, secondly, give me neither poverty nor riches. And then he unpacks this second request a little bit more than he does the first. And he goes on to say, feed me with the food that is needful for me. Verse 9, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. That is such a reasonable prayer. In some respects, it is a prelude to the Lord's prayer. Did you notice? First, he prays, don't lead me into temptation. That is, let my words speak truthfulness. But also he prays, give me my daily bread. Give me, God, just what I need for every single day. Agar prays, give me just what I need because whether I am rich or poor, there's always a risk. If I have wealth, then I will become vulnerable to a kind of self-sufficiency. And, and if I'm impoverished, I'm, in, I'm, I'm vulnerable to stealing. So notice that Agar doesn't even define what it is that he needs. He just says, God, you know, you know what I need. So don't give me too much and don't give me too little. Just give me my daily bread. It's humble. It's an insightful prayer. It's the kind of prayer that is offered by someone who doesn't trust himself, but who trusts the Lord. God, you know me. And you know what my tendencies will be. And if I have too much, you know where that might take me. And if I have too little, you know the dangers that it might pose to me. Give me what I need. In verses 1 through 9, we do get a glimpse of the kind of humility that God honors. And it begins with being overwhelmed by his greatness. What we have when we come to verses 10 through 17 then is, is a picture of the folly of self-exaltation. If the first nine verses call us to a, a posture of humility, verses 10 through 17 call us to, to, be, to be weary and wary of the folly of self-exaltation. And what we're going to find in these few verses, and we'll spend just a moment here, is in a an appeal to exercise self-restraint. But I want you to see how he sets it up because the section begins and ends with a warning in verse 10 that then frames two lists. As you read through Proverbs 30, you, you were immediately aware of how he loves, Agur does, to make lists of things that he observes. Well, he frames two lists with a warning, first in verses 11 through 14 and then in verses 15 through 17. First, in 11 through 14, he mentions the examples of generational arrogance. Just note that for now. We'll come back to it. And then in verses 15 through 17, he mentions two, then three, then four things that are never satisfied. All of this we can place under that warning of being careful of, of the folly of self-exaltation, which really is what this middle section of this chapter is all about. He begins with this this caution against slander in verse 10. Here's the warning. Do not slander a servant to his master unless he curse you and you be held guilty. During this series, you'll recall that we spent two weeks talking about the power and peril of our words. And our words have such a massive impact that there is danger in the words that we speak 
There's toxicity in the words that we speak. There's also great power and influence. But we realize, especially when we talked about the toxic effect of our words, how much the words that we speak cause trouble. We talked about gossip, which is that toxic form of speech that is careless when we hurt others. And then slander is mentioned here, which is the the sharing of damaging information about somebody else. And how the book of Proverbs warns us against gossip and slander. Proverbs 11 verse 13 says, Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Proverbs 20 verse 19 says, Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a simple babble or somebody who just can't stop. To slander another person's servant then in verse 10 sounds like a pathetic attempt at self-flattery. By putting down another person, bad-mouthing a colleague, bad-mouthing another person, maybe to your boss or to the supervisor, that's what verse 10 is speaking of. And he warns us, Agur does, that before a relationship is torn apart by talking about someone to someone else, first go and talk to your fellow and brother and sister first. And then the warning of verse 10 is followed by four snapshots. Four snapshots of what we could refer to as generational arrogance. You'll notice, beginning in verse 11, the phrase, there are those. In the original Hebrew, it says, in this generation, and says it again in verse 12, in this generation. It says it again in verse 13, in this generation. Again in verse 14, in this generation. So he is making a statement about those who exalt themselves in this generation. And again, he says in verse 11, there are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. Pretty clear. We won't spend much time unpacking that because it's just so clear. Verse 12, there are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. There are those, how lofty, the word is haughty, are their eyes, how their eyelids lift up. Verse 14, there are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives. He's got a way with words, doesn't he? To devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among mankind. What's he saying? He is saying that as I look out on this world, I see a generation of people who don't obey mom and dad, a generation of people who think that they're better than they actually are and they've never been washed of their sins. I see people who are so proud. I see people who destroy and devour others with their words. And this is not a problem relegated to just boomers or millennials or whatever generation you are in. This is a problem of humanity. The problem of haughtiness is universal and timeless. And when we read a passage like this, what do we do? I I think our response rightly to this should be, you know what? Things have always been pretty bad. Sometimes we have the tendency to think that things were better at another period of time, but, but Agur is writing 2,600 years ago, and, and the things that we would use to describe our generation today, he was describing his generation then. We haven't gotten much better over the years, not at all. There is the same thing with the second list that begins 
in verse 15 with two creeping lines. The leech has two daughters, give and give. That's a crazy verse. And if for no other reason, then it gives me an opportunity to talk about the leech for the first time ever from the pulpit. What is a leech? A leech is a worm that, that attaches to the flesh and sucks blood. There's a picture for you. So a leech, and it tells you something about Agar, that he got that close enough to one to be able to examine its parts. A leech has two suckers at opposite ends that just sucks and sucks and suzz and sucks and says, give me, give me, give me, and hence the two daughters, give and give. And then he says the leech is connected to four other things that are never satisfied. Three things that are never satisfied. Four never say enough. Verse 16, Sheol, the place of the dead. The grave always is hungry for more. The barren womb. The land never satisfied with water. And the fire that never says enough. What in the world is this all about? Well, it simply says that the problem with humanity, the problem with us, the problem with me is I always want more. I want more and more and more and we have a craving for more and it never satisfies. It takes us back to his prayer. So God give me contentment. Help me to be satisfied just with what you want to give me and, and keep me from always wanting more. Keep me, yes, from having less. Make me a contented person. That's humility. And then in the final section of this chapter, Agur circles back to verse 11 and, and issues a dire warning of a child that dishonors his or her parents. This seems to have been an issue for him. He mentions it in verse 11. Now he mentions it again in verse 17. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother, oh boy, will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Hmm. The mocking eye. The warning of being wise in your own eyes. And yeah, he's speaking to children, to teenagers who fail to respond to the role of honoring their mom and dad. Scripture always has such serious things to say here. But the insight of this chapter helps us also to see that this kind of self-exaltation, this folly is all around us. Watch your way. Watch your steps. And then a life of wisdom begins with being overwhelmed by, great, by God's greatness, by being aware of the folly of self-exaltation. And then thirdly, he closes out in verses 18 to the end of the chapter with an appeal never to lose the wonder at God's creation. I hope you see in some way that Agur was a man of, of deep insight. He was aware of the bigness of God. He clearly saw the depravity in each of our lives. But he also never lost the ability to be captivated by the wonder of God in creation. And he begins with four, four marvels in verses 18 and 19. Three things are too wonderful for me. For I do not understand the way of an eagle in the sky the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. What do those four marvels have in common? They leave no trace or trail. 
just like you can't trace the path of an eagle in the sky or a snake when it crawls over a rock or a ship as it passes through the water. You see the wake and then it disappears. There's no trail that can absolve, that cannot absolve themselves. Agur unpacks this message in an absurdity. And then he wraps it in irony in verse 20. For he goes on to say, in light of those four marvels just mentioned in verses 18 and 19, he says this in verse 20, this is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. I don't know about you, but when I read verse 20, I I don't know whether to, to laugh or to cringe because his humor is dark. It's sort of unsettling and and yet profoundly serious. What's he saying? He is saying that those who are guilty of of sexual sin are like those who, who think they can just eat something and then wipe their mouth clean as if they've done no wrong. They think that they have left no trace. But when you give yourself over to that kind of sin, oh, it marks you. And it defines you, and it will destroy you. He goes on to describe four reversals in verses 21 through 23, four regal realities in verses 29 through 31 that we don't have the time to to look at because my time is escaping me. But before we're done, I want to go back to verses 24 through 28. And as we close, just ask you to notice four, four small creatures that he identifies here. And, and in these verses, Agur, if you will, takes us to the zoo. And he wants us to examine and stare and gaze at these small, four small creatures who are called wise. Verse 24, four, four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. The rock badges are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. And the lizard, well, you can take in your hands if you can catch it yet it is in king's palaces. Four creatures, the ant, the rock badger, the locust, and the lizard. And there's something about these four small little tiny creatures that teach us a lot about wisdom and therefore how to live today. And that's the great need right now. More than anything else, I think, in our culture today, and especially for us as Christians, we need to know how to live wisely. And last week, we talked a little bit about the ant. Proverbs is fascinated with the ant. And so we return to the ant, who we're told by Agur again, works hard in the summer so that when winter comes, it has food. So when everyone else is playing, the ant is working. It's working because it knows that when it goes underground, there's going to be significant climate change for the ant as it lives buried beneath the earth during the winter. And therefore, it has, because it has worked when everybody else has been playing, it has enough food to survive. There's wisdom there. The rock badger is a little creature that looks a little bit like a chipmunk. It's probably a little smaller than a rabbit. It's easy prey for other desert creatures and animals. They're of a similar color to the rock so that when a predator comes to attack this little rock badger, it's able to blend in with the rocks and hide in the cracks. What's the wisdom here? The wisdom of the rock badger gives us a picture of where our security comes from. 
Our security is in the rock, which is a metaphor throughout the Bible to refer to the power of God and his ability to keep us safe. If you want to live a wise life in this world and recognize that God is your stability, God is your security, God is your safety, and as the African-American spiritual says, he is a rock in a weary land, a shelter in a time of storm. Yes, work like the ant, but also be like the rock badger that finds its security in God alone. The locust has no king, he tells us, but it also has, it's found, um, and it's by its functioning, by its living and community with other locusts. In the Bible, locusts are often depicted for what? Their destructive power. So, for instance, when Joel predicts of an invasion of locusts, those locusts will swarm in, and they will swarm in oftentimes by millions, and the result is just devastating. And Agur's thoughts here are not to get us to think about that kind of enormous devastation, though that is true, but that these small creatures have such enormous impact when what? When they work together, when they function together as one. And it's a call for us as Christians. Don't try to do life by yourself. Don't try to live the Christian life as a solo act. God has made us to function in community with one another. Do you know that in the Bible, you never come across the word saint in the singular? But rather when the word saint is used, it's always plural, saints. And that is while we may have a personal faith in God alone, and we must, it's never alone. God made us function to make, made us to function in community, to make us function together. We don't have to face life alone. We are able and we must press on together so that, again, Christianity is not a lone ranger thing. None of us are that wise to make it by ourselves. That's the lesson of the locust. Live in community. Function together. The impact that we can have together will always be far greater than it could ever be if we stay alone. That's the lesson again of the locust. And finally, there's the lizard. And God made the lizard to function with what's called the reverse screw. Lizards are able to move in that way. They work in reverse. They have a way of getting also into the most unlikely places. And so while he says here, you can capture it in your hand, you'll also find a lizard in a place where it doesn't belong, in king's palaces. What's, what's he saying? He is telling us that a lizard is really a picture of God's grace. We say, where do you get that? Well, it's, it's a picture of being blessed in ways that we don't deserve. Here again is a lesson in humility. The lizard is such a small creature, you can capture it in your hands, but you'll also find it floating around, running around in king's palaces. If you have been blessed in any way, in any way, and who among us hasn't been, then none of us deserve what we have received None of us are entitled to it, but every single thing we have has been given to us by God's grace. There is not a single thing you have that you are allowed to say, I did that. There's no accomplishment, no achievement that you've ever done that you're able to say, I made that happen. I did that by my power and by my strength. No, you didn't. 
who gave you the breath to breathe, who gave you your body, your hands, and who gave you your mind, who gave you the ability to function. All of that has been given to you by God. He gave you what you did not deserve. The lizard doesn't belong in a king's palace, but it's there. And we honestly deserve nothing. But look at what he has given us. If you have been redeemed by the grace of God, if you have been saved and rescued by Jesus Christ, then you know that. You know that you have been blessed beyond anything you ever deserve. We deserve nothing. We deserve the judgment of God. And yet by his mercy and compassion and grace, what has he done to us? He now has given us the privilege and the right to one day dwell in the kingdom of God, in his palace, if you will, forever. So the ant, the rock badger, the locust, and the lizard show us how to live wisely today. Edgar wraps up this chapter in his final warning. Let me be quick. I'll just read it. If you've been foolish, exalting yourself, or if you've been devising evil, put your hand on your mouth. For pressing milk produces curds. That's yogurt. Pressing the nose produces blood. Pressing anger produces strife. In yourself, exalting in your ways and and all that you're doing, if you're trying to clutch and grab and squeeze and press, it's not going to go well for you. But if you have been foolish exalting yourself, or if you've been devising evil, put your hand over your mouth. Certain gestures seem to really capture what it means to, to be a person of humility. Certain gestures that fit perfectly, again, a posture of humility. Kneeling, bowing, and covering your hand over your mouth. And if you have been proud, if you have been persistently pressing for attention, if you have been strutting like a rooster, Ager says, be silent. Be silent. For holding your tongue is the pathway to wisdom. So in his last call to humility, he says, clasp your hand over your mouth. You and I will become wise when our mouths are stopped and our hearts are filled with a healthy, with a humble fear of the Lord. That's what it means to walk in wisdom to fear him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. It was a long journey through Proverbs 30. It's been a great series, though, I think, for us together. And Father, our prayer would be that you would set us continually upon this journey to wisdom before your presence and to live it out and to experience it and for it to be internalized and assimilated in us means simply that, Father, we live out of a fear of who you are, not a cringing, servile fear, but a healthy reverence for who you are. Really, Father, to be overwhelmed by your greatness. You are the almighty God who has put this world into existence, who has given us your word, who has 
shown us who we are and has rescued us by Christ. And for all of that, we give you thanks. We can say this morning, Father, we are blessed beyond what we deserve because we deserve nothing. And you have given us everything through Christ. Thank you. Now, because of Christ, who is our wisdom, help us to keep our eyes fixed and focused and gazing upon him so that he will be our wisdom who goes before us. Use your word today for whatever your purpose is in each of our lives so that in all that we do, we may give you honor for it all. In Christ's name and all God's people said. Let me invite you to stand.